Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm Will Oremus. And I'm April Glazer. Hey, everyone. Welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We're recording this on the afternoon of Tuesday, November 14th. On today's show, we'll talk about how WikiLeaks, the radical whistleblowing group run by its pugnacious chief-in-exile, Julian Assange, actually sent Donald Trump Jr., the son of President Trump, direct messages on Twitter before and after the election. Nice going, WikiLeaks. And how incredibly audacious and stupid that was, considering the suspicion of Russian ties to WikiLeaks. We'll also take a quick look at the data firm Trump's campaign used to target voters online, Cambridge Analytica, which also has a suspicious WikiLeaks connection. All right. And I know April has strong feelings on this. We're also going to talk about a speech by Senator Al Franken that suggests we should regulate big tech companies more like utilities. We'll debate whether that's a big deal, a sort of sea change in how we view the tech industry, or whether I'm just overreacting to an inconsequential speech given by one senator based on my own confirmation bias, which is entirely possible. And speaking of biases, we're going to interview the co-founder of an interesting and controversial startup whose mission is to help other companies make their apps and online platforms more addictive by playing on our cognitive biases and psychological weaknesses. The company is called Dopamine Labs, and our guest is Dalton Combs. He has a PhD in neuroeconomics, and hopefully he will tell us what the hell that means. And then we'll end with Don't Close My Tabs, our segment on some of the best things we've seen on the web this week. So next week should be fun because I am a human guinea pig. <laughs> what are you what are you guinea pigging? I am guinea pigging a AI assistant, a robot that I let into my home made by Google, the all too powerful subsidiary of Alphabet. <laughs> and I'm a little sketched out about it, actually, even though it's super small. It's like the size of a coaster. Yeah, I'm surprised you're even doing this. I know that you're you're like way more careful about your privacy than I am. I let these big companies into my life in all sorts of terrible ways. Uh, why did you do it? Well, I want to review for our listeners what it's like because I'm somebody that typically would not have an AI assistant in my house. Uh, I'm kind of happy with my French press and my phone charger and my laptop, and that's about it. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of room to innovate in the voice interface space. It's been hyped for a long time. It's getting more normal. I've been writing about the industry for a while. And although I've played with them at, like, shows and stuff, I've never, like, let one into my house. So (laughs) we'll see. This is is good because I feel like there's a, a large number of people who are in your boat where they, like, they're intrigued by these things but also terrified by the press they've seen about how they're spying on you all the time. So I'll be curious to see how it goes for you. I have a Google Home on my kitchen. I've had it for a little while. I had Alexa before that. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, and, and, and the Google, I find it doesn't... Well, I, you know what? I won't, I won't prejudice you. I'm going to look forward to your thoughts on next week's show. Okay, okay. So we'll talk about that next week. Uh, but how are you doing this week, Will? 
Uh, you know, this week has not been as crazy for me news-wise. I know you have a lot of stuff uh, on your plate. What What is the big story that you're following this week? I am following something that came out yesterday, actually. So, yes, I have a lot on my plate, but the ground is always uh, moving, but, you know, kind of underneath my feet. Um, I am... Uh, looking at a story or something that I'm, I'm kind of focused on and that I wrote about last night was a story that came out of The Atlantic about how uh, WikiLeaks uh, actually DM'd Donald Trump Jr., the son of Trump, on Twitter uh, and uh, sent all kinds of interesting messages. But just the fact that WikiLeaks, which is supposed to, again, be this kind of space that's safe for people to to, you know, communicate sensitive things uh, would would send a, a, a DM uh, to to somebody that could be the son of a president um, is just beyond me. And then when we when we look at what was actually sent, uh, it, the story just gets even more wild. Yeah. So they actually DM'd him and stop me if I've got this wrong. They DM'd him the password to a website run by an anti-Trump group during the election. So they had they had guessed or stolen this password and they gave that to to Donald Trump's son, right? Yeah, like in the very first message that they sent, uh, he sent a password. And if if you know Donald Trump's son or anyone affiliated with the Trump campaign use that password to access the opposition site, then they're potentially in violation of federal criminal hacking law, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which says that it's illegal to you know lock into a site without authorization or you know with a pass with a stolen password. Like that would likely. Uh, you know, or could be illegal. Um, so right off the bat, you know, they kind of WikiLeaks paved roads for the the Trump administration to be in, you know, potentially illegal territory. And at this point, we also have to realize that there was already suspicion that WikiLeaks had ties to Russia. You know, uh, in July is when the first set of emails uh, was dumped, right, uh, about the DNC. And so now this is in September, shortly before the Podesta emails were dumped. And at that point, there were already uh, a lot, there was a lot of conversation that this was, at least the emails were, were taken through Russian hackers and then somehow you know, ferried to WikiLeaks and then WikiLeaks dumped them. And so it's just crazy that, uh, you know, you would think that if they had any good security culture, they would obviously, like, not try to create direct links between a, you know, suspected Russian-linked organization and the Trump campaign. Um, But they didn't seem to have that type of reservation. (laughs) All right. So I get that this is a big story in the ongoing saga of Trump's links to Russia. What's the tech angle here? I mean, what do you take as a tech reporter? What do you take away from this, April? Well, first of all, they're using Twitter, right, which is something that I write about. It's a it's a huge company. It's a very important company for how we communicate. But, you know, I think zooming out even more is just focusing on the, the, the centrality of technology to all processes of political communication, whether that's clandestine or whether it's totally legit and just, you know, emails that you would expect someone like John Podesta to send as the campaign director of, you know, Hillary Clinton. And so... Uh, I think what's coming out in in so many of um, these these stories about the Russian about Russia's interference in the election is how Russia used technology as well, right? So they used social media. Um, the intelligence community has said that they, you know, uh, have high confidence that WikiLeaks has ties to Russia. You know, WikiLeaks is kind of a a, a Dropbox for whistleblowers. Right. right? I guess they were the, they sort of started out as a tech company, right? Before they became like arguably. Yeah, Assange has yeah. a hacker background. 
For sure. And he comes from that kind of digital rights hackery community, for sure. Um, and, you know, also uh, another aspect of the uh, the Russian kind of interference story is like social media, which, which we've been talking about on this show and, and the manipulation of social media, but also, uh, you know, Trump's data firm. Uh, Cambridge Analytica, which uh, we now know, uh, you know, the CEO of which uh, was was in touch with WikiLeaks while he was in contract negotiations, uh, you know, with with uh, starting on Trump's campaign. And this is a data firm, right? This is a tech firm that uses user data uh, uh, ostensibly to to micro target voters uh, at times when uh, they'll be most receptive to that messaging. And, you know, the the efficacy of that can be debated all day. But these are all tech companies. The ways that they're communicating is all technology dependent. And so to me, this is very much, you know, a, a story of, of how you can't have a story. You can't have a political communication story without there being a tech angle anymore. All right, April, I think you actually have convinced me that this is a tech story, because when I think about it, if you try to imagine how this all would have gone down in a world without today's technologies, I mean, first of all, it's just hard to even imagine. It's hard to even begin to imagine any of it. But we're talking like somebody from WikiLeaks, what, like some guy in a trench coat, like passing a note to Donald Trump uh, somewhere to Donald Trump Jr. somewhere in in, uh, Washington, D.C. or or, you know, and. Would they have been dumb enough to do that? That is that just as dumb as sending him a Twitter DM? No, I don't think it's as dumb as sending a Twitter DM <laughs> because the thing with those kind of those meetings that are at night in parking lots and you're, you know, uh, just under a street lamp. I, <laughs> you know, those meetings uh, are only with the people that had them, especially if you don't have phones on you that can say, you know, where you are at any given time and you don't have a digital record of your whereabouts. Uh, this is very different. This these are electronic communications for which records are. Like automatically created. Uh, and so we're just seeing a, a, a very different time, but we're seeing people act as if they are still uh, exchanging notes and manila folders in parking lots. And at the same time, yet the fact that they're using these technologies almost makes it seem less sinister, right? Like if they actually did have to meet in darkened corners and pass these notes, or if they weren't passing a password to a website, but they were actually like handing a key, a stolen key to somebody's office, it would be even more clear than it is how blatantly wrong this stuff is. Somehow the technology seems to, to to make us view it through more of sort of a distance. Like, oh, he just sent a DM. It was just a password. But the 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 analog world analogies here actually seem more sinister to me. No, that's a great point. It's a very different uh feel when it's online versus when it's offline. And I think that kind of leads us into our next conversation, which is about these big tech platforms like Twitter that uh, and like Facebook and, and Google that it seems like everybody uses Donald Trump Jr. and us. <laughs> so what is it about all this big tech, Will? All right. So, so right. We have talked a lot about regulation of tech companies. In our first episode, we focused the whole episode on these congressional hearings where the tech companies had to go to Washington and talk about Russian meddling in the election. But now some of the lawmakers who sat through those hearings feel like they still have stuff they want to talk about. And one of those is Senator Al Franken from Minnesota. He gave a speech last week to the Open Markets Institute. He said basically that these tech companies have become so big that they lack the ability to control their own platforms. And he said, last week's hearings demonstrate these companies might not be up to the challenge they created for themselves. His takeaway from that is that 
We should look at new ways to regulate them. And he raised an analogy that I think is interesting. I want to get your thoughts on this, April. He raised the analogy of net neutrality, which is the principle that applies to internet carriers um, where they have to treat all traffic on the internet equally. They can't be deciding, you know, who gets to send their information over the internet and who doesn't. He was saying, what if we applied that same principle to platforms like Google and Facebook and Amazon, where they are required by law to treat everybody's content equally? Yeah. And what's so interesting there is that that seems antithetical to their whole algorithmic news feed you know, money-making game, right? Is that the whole point is that it's not just this open stream where everything just is treated equally. It's it's actually stuff does get prioritized and bumped to the top. So it's an interesting concept, and but but it's just it it seems like it would just completely um, undermine the economic model of of like the Facebook newsfeed. Right. And, you know, I don't think that Franken particularly cares if he undermines Facebook's economic model. But I do think I mean, I think you're right. This there unless unless we're missing something here. And we've actually asked Senator Franken's team to, to bring him on the show. We haven't heard back yet, but maybe someday that'll happen. I would love to ask him this in person. But, uh, you know, it seems like he has a misunderstanding of how these platforms actually work, because. Before Google came along, you know, uh, the the internet w- was kind of flat and and you know bad content and good content was treated equally, and that's why you couldn't find anything. It was only when Google came along and started ranking stuff by relevance that you could actually find the the answer to your question online. That's that that's what Google is. It it, it's, it ranks some content higher than others. Facebook it arguably is the same kind of thing. Facebook would not exist if it were just a platform where everything that everybody you know. Um, you know, everything said by everybody, you know, turns up in your feed. It works because it ranks that content so that you see the stuff you care about um, at the top of your feed. Yeah, I, I would be hesitant to say he doesn't. I think like the the anal- that he doesn't exactly know how these work. I, maybe just to be a bit more generous would would be to say that the analogy that these platforms are communications pathways or, or, or you know, the pipes or infrastructure, rather, that, that we depend upon and therefore should be subject to some form of public interest regulation may be, of, may be what he was trying to get at. Um, and, you know, I, I we've heard other people, you know, say this too, including Steve Bannon has said uh, that he thinks that these platforms like Google and Facebook should be treated like utilities. And they do have a point that we do use these things, you know, in a way that we can't re- we can't really avoid using them rather. Yeah. So when so this is why it was interesting to me, because when you find something where Al Franken and Steve Bannon are in agreement <laughs> that, you know, you know that you're, you're hitting an interesting cross section of the political spectrum there. Um, and, and I think what's noteworthy about this, leaving aside for the moment, the specifics of Franken's analogy and whether it has any validity, it's that the Democrats have been big tech's best friend uh, all this time. I mean, Obama and and big tech were tight. Uh, Hillary Clinton w- was tight with them. Um, and Donald Trump does not have that same relationship with him. He's, you know, he's famously um, talked about how Amazon needs to be, uh, you know, how Amazon is a monopoly. Um, and uh, and now you've got the left. Now you've got a prominent Democrat in Franken taking this sort of more populist line against these tech companies. Uh, you know, it could be a very in- interesting coalition that's forming here on both the left and the right that they have to worry about. Yeah, you know, and it's it's not just about regulating them in terms of, of net neutrality or, or like, 
you know, giving them some sort of public interest obligations. You know, there's also a, a, another way to kind of reduce or rein in their powers is through antitrust, right? Or through saying that they just got too big and they need to be broken up. And and by a lot of people's measures, Google is just as big as, you know, the Bell companies were, you know, back, uh, back you know, almost 100 years ago. So these these arguments are starting to come from both sides for sure. Okay, time for a short break. When we come back, we'll have our interview with T. Dalton Combs from Dopamine Labs. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos, but it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks and automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations so you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. So our guest today is Dalton Combs. He's the co-founder of a company called Dopamine Labs, whose goal is to help other companies make their apps more addictive. Uh, Dopamine does this by drawing on academic research in the fields of neuropsychology and neuroeconomics to keep us opening those push notifications and checking in. Dalton's going to tell us why what he's doing is not evil, it's just how the game is played. We're going to react with very skeptical and pensive faces that you won't be able to see because this is a podcast. I think he's also going to talk a little bit about how we can defend ourselves against these types of tactics. So Dalton, I, I probably totally mangled what it is you guys are doing. Why don't you give us the VC elevator pitch? Uh, what is that, like the one minute or less pitch? Totally. No, uh, you weren't too far off. So at Dopamine Labs, we do two things. Uh, we help developers make apps more addictive and we help users quit addictive apps. All right. So those sound, those things sound kind of contradictory. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, they sound like they, they stand right against each other. Right. But the way we see it is, uh, we're trying to make technologies that help people change themselves into who they want to be. And so your car has a gas pedal and a brake because sometimes you want to go faster and sometimes you want to go slower. So we have one tool that makes habits easier to form and one tool that makes habits easy to break. All right. That's really interesting. Before we get into that, uh, I want to ask you, I want to back up for a second Mm -hmm. and ask you, what is neuroeconomics? So uh, neuroeconomics is, uh, so that's the field I got my my PhD in. And neuroeconomics is about using models from economics to try to understand why people do what they do combined with neuroimaging and neuroscience data. So we put people in MRIs and we ask them questions and we try to look at their brain activity and figure out why they're doing what they're doing. So we're taking these old models from economics and updating them with insights from neuroscience and actually looking at the brain to figure out how people make decisions. All right. Interesting. Give me really quick. Give me one key finding from the field of neuroeconomics. What's one thing they found that has been discovered in that very young field that has surprised people? Uh, so one of the the big findings is that uh, losses hurt a lot more than gains feel good. So losing a dollar hurts about twice as much as uh, gaining a dollar feels good is one of the the big findings in the field. All right. So how do you apply a finding like that to the work that you do at Dopamine, where I, I believe you're you're working for like there's an app that comes to you and says, we want to make, we, we want to make our app stickier. 
we want to, you know, to, to increase engagement. How do you apply a finding like that to help them? Yeah. So the research that we draw on looks at what causes people to make choices. And so most of our choices are driven by the habit system, which has to do with you, you take an action and then sometimes that action feels really good. And that causes you to do it more again in the future. So let's say you wanted to go to the gym more often. If I'm waiting for you at the gym and when you get there, I give you a big high five and I say, great job for going to the gym today. That's going to make you more likely to go to the gym again in the future. But if you get that every single time, it just becomes background noise because you're used to it. It's just a normal gym experience and it stops changing your behavior. So what we do is we take that kind of finding and the wiring in the brain that we know that underpins you, that causes you to be that way. And we help developers figure out when and how to communicate with their users in order to make different actions or different parts of their app more habit-forming. That's uh, that's totally fascinating. Also, you just explained to me why my toddler doesn't care anymore when I tell him I love him because I do it too much, maybe. Yeah, too predictable, too predictable. What is an example, then, of a tactic that a company can do to, to, uh, to take advantage of this? Yeah, so... Uh, when a company comes to us, the first thing we do is figure out what are those critical actions in their app that really drive engagement. So for a social app, that's obviously posting. For a healthcare app, that might be taking your pills on time or going on regular walks. And so we identify what are those things that you want to turn into a habit. And then we figure out a way to sometimes make it more rewarding than usual. So this is usually just simple UI sugar stuff. So you know how when you uh, text a friend, congratulations, uh, I message, you get confetti falling from the top, or when you like something, sometimes you get an explosion of hearts. Those little elements are called UI sugar. It just makes it kick a little bit harder. And then what we do is on a user-by-user -user basis, we change that sugar to make it more or less enticing to build that habit over time. Yeah, and, and so part of the reason that we wanted to have you on this week is because last week, Sean Parker, who was a co-founder of Napster and who was an early employee and in fact the first president at Facebook, made some comments that uh, that went around the around tech circles a lot, where he was talking about those early days at Facebook and how really they consciously set out to sort of addict people or, or engage people in just the kinds of ways you were talking about. We actually have a clip of that that I, that I want to play for you guys right now. That thought process was all about how do we consume as much of your time and conscious attention as possible. And that means that we need to sort of give you a little dopamine hit every once in a while um, because someone liked or commented on a photo or a post or whatever. And that's going to get you to contribute more content. And that's going to get you, you know, more likes and comments. I mean, it's, a, it's, a val it's a social validation feedback loop. Dalton, what did you make of Sean's comments? He actually seemed to be expressing regret over this and saying that this, this is something they should not have done. Yeah, uh, I think it's easy for him to say that it's something they shouldn't have done when he has this much distance between him and making those decisions, like those decisions yeah, and all are... that money, all that extra money exactly. that he's made from him too. Right? Exactly. Once the engagement's in his back pocket, it, uh, he can, he can be a little more straightforward about it. But I think that basically any technology company, any piece of technology that interacts with people, someone at that company is thinking in those terms, because, uh, whether you're a meditation app, a personal finance app, uh, a healthcare app, an education app, you have to be thinking about how you interact with your users. And the number one thing that everyone wants to know that their product is working is to see users using it more. So it's, it's very candid of him to talk about that openly, but I think that basically any tech company that has a user interface thinks about their user interface that way. I don't know. I want to push back because I okay. guess 
we have the uh, privilege of his hindsight, right? Like he's able to connect the dots by looking behind him and saying, like, hey, this is like this addictive tech that we built has not necessarily been good for people. And it has alienated people or made us less social, you know, in the in the real world offline, like offline. And uh, and we do spend too much time buried in our phones and it's affected our relationships. And so why would we just dismiss that of saying, oh, it's easy for him to say that now that he's made money? I mean, maybe we should take that as a lesson. So I would, I would say two things. One is that as long as uh, tech companies have these ad, you know, ad support models or IAP models that are where their economics are driven by eyeball hours, this is always going to be a tension in the tech industry about wanting to respect people's autonomy while wanting to make sure they spend a lot of time on platform. But I also think that you're right that a lot of tech companies and a lot of entrepreneurs are seeing this problem and they want to even for cynical reasons, have a healthier relationship with their user base because they don't want their users to hate the role that their technology plays in their life. Like, I don't think Twitter is excited that people talk about how much they hate being addicted to Twitter. They want people to feel like they have a healthy relationship with their product. Uh, And I think that is um, a direction that a lot of technology companies and user interfaces are moving. All right, so so maybe you can tell us a little bit about your about your product and and about your company. You're you're venture backed, right? Do you have uh you know do you have a lot of clients already who are using your tools? Uh, yeah, we have uh, about a dozen smallish clients. Uh, probably no one that uh, your listeners will have heard of. Uh, so it's uh, smaller companies right now focusing on um, mostly healthcare. And do you make a distinction? I mean, are are you? I, I assume you just will work with any any client. I mean, do do you have any concerns about? You know, you have a client who's who's making an app that might be just wasting people's time or might be destructive to society in some way, and you're going to help them make that more addictive? Uh, yeah, so we are selective about our clients. So we have a, as part of our sales validation process, we validate these customers for their alignment with their users. And we don't work with customers that are, with publishers that are actively hostile to their users. And so we have this six-point scale and so we ask the, you know, we ask them, we watch how they talk about their users. Many publishers have a very dismissive, patronizing tone when they talk about their uh, their users or their readers. Um, and then we ask, we look to see if the critical action that they want to turn into a habit does that have good alignment with their users. Uh, so, do for example, a healthcare company that gets paid based on medical adherence has really great alignment with their users because dopamine and the client and the user all want to be taking their medication more regularly. Uh, and the last thing we look at is, is this a behavior that's actually good for the end user? Uh, and so we use those questions to evaluate uh, who we work with. And if you get too many zeros on those, then we're not going to be able to help you out. So has any company so far gotten too many zeros and you've, oh, yeah. you've actually turned away business? Oh, yeah. Uh, I would say about a, about a third of our inbounds get turned away that way. I I think, though, there's... Uh, merit instead of making something addictive so that people will be drawn to use it, just making it good, right? And making it useful, right? So I'm thinking, you know, Amazon, which has all kinds of problems. One of the reasons why it's good is not because I'm addicted to scrolling through Amazon. Uh, One of the reasons why I I, I use it all the time because it's a good service, right? And, you know, I, I, I just wonder if maybe we're going in the wrong direction here. So uh, I think that's a great point. And I think you can you can see this really clearly in two products. So Google and YouTube, right? They're both owned by Alphabet. 
but the Google product, they measure their success and how quickly they get you off the homepage. So they want you to get onto Google, find exactly what you're looking for and get gone. And that is their metric of success. Whereas YouTube is all about time on platform. Uh, so I, I do support the idea of finding ways to design products where the less you use them, the uh, more helpful they are. But I think they're inevitably going to be products that are more useful the more you use them. So like a productivity tool, you want to be clearing more items from your checklist. And so if you can have a more habitual response of getting your productivity items done, that's a more effective productivity app. An email client that helps you process your emails more quickly and gets you to process more emails in an hour is a better email client. So so give me an example of a, of a company that's missing out on an, on an opportunity or doing something wrong in terms of, you know, your knowledge of how you, how you keep people engaged. Yeah, I think... Uh, I mean, there are so many. Uh, let's talk about Salesforce. I imagine a lot of people have personal experience with touching a Salesforce panel. Uh, it'd be really easy to make a Salesforce panel more engaging by adding these little hits of dopamine um, all over the place. Any medical app you can think of, any meditation app is leaving a lot of Zen on the table by not thinking about how to make a mindful practice uh, a, a habit of mind. <laughs> I think that's a ridiculous statement. <laughs> but tell me, tell me, tell me why, why do you feel like that's ridiculous? Oh, just leaving Zen on the, the table. Uh, you know, I think that, uh, if the point is for people to live a more Zen life, maybe that would be putting the phone down, not, uh, engaging more with the app. But I, 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 I want to push back on something else you said earlier about, uh, yeah. you know, the point of Google being for people to spend less time on Google. I don't really mm -hmm. see that as being the case. Google is actually bringing more and more information into its search page. So Wikipedia articles are being brought in as snippets and 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 restaurant reviews are being brought in on the side and you can play videos actually on the search page. So I actually see them trying to increase engagement, you know, on Google search uh, as opposed to trying to get people off. And this is just kind of the economics of the way platforms work, where you're kind of stuck in these walled gardens and making more of them where you it's hard to find a door out or you just feel like you have to kind of stick with this this product that you are now invested in perhaps now emotionally uh just doesn't seem healthy and it doesn't seem like the direction that I, at least i want my internet usage to take and and maybe for the internet usage of my community so I guess this might be a good time to talk about space. So this is uh, the other product that we make that is designed to go directly to users who feel the way that you do about their relationship with technology, that they feel like they don't like uh, all of these tricks being used without them knowing to get them to spend more time in Twitter mm -hmm. than they wish they would spend. Uh, and so space works the exact opposite way that the dopamine API does. And it works by putting a a break, a space, a gap between you and the most addictive uh, apps on your phone. There's and all kinds of apps like that, that kind of get you to stop using, you know, social so, media and stuff like that. Yep. So it's not to get you to stop using. So let me try and walk you through the user story. So let's say, uh, you know, I spend way too much time on Reddit. So, and I use the uh, Reddit for Chrome plugin. So when I type in reddit.com on my laptop, before Reddit loads, it loads a three to 12 second breathing exercise. And that breathing exercise does two things. One, it gives me a moment to think about, to sort of break my flow mm -hmm. and say, is this really where I want to be right now? Mm -hmm. And the second thing it does is by putting a gap between 
me clicking on that bookmark and Reddit loading, it weakens the habit loop in my head. Uh, and then on top of that, that gap of how long the breathing exercise is, is modulated so that when space thinks I'm being highly compulsive, it's a much longer gap. And when it thinks I'm being deliberate, it's a very short gap. So it's designed over time to encourage a more deliberate interaction between us and our technology. It seems parental. I don't know. Fighting fire with fire makes more fire and fighting tech with tech might just make more tech. Uh, but I don't know. Uh, any last questions, Will? Yeah. All right. April's April's more cynical about this than I am. I, I, Sorry. I, I might be the gullible. <laughs> no, no. I, I might be the gullible one here because I hear I hear this and I'm like, ooh, that sounds cool. I want to try it. Um, but <laughs> but let me let me. All right. Let me push you one more time. I know we're giving you a hard time on yeah. here, but but uh, uh, no, we, we really yeah. appreciate your, your answers. Um, so in my story that I wrote about uh, Sean Parker's comments and about your app, uh, I referenced on, on mm-hmm. Hacker News, this popular tech discussion board, the top comment about a TechCrunch story about Dopamine Labs is as follows, quote, this organization is disgusting and is evidence enough that our industry has no sense of ethical responsibility. When massive regulation lands on Silicon Valley and we whine about the impact it has on innovation, remember companies like Dopamine Labs who truly deserved it. All right, defend yourself against that, Dalton. <laughs> so, yeah, I would just say that the techniques that we're promoting uh, are extremely popular in Silicon Valley. And the outlook, the the perspective we're promoting is extremely popular. What we're trying to do is both bring bring to the forefront the fact that these that people are, do, are doing this stuff, that that Facebook and Twitter and every company out there wants you spending more time on platform. And we're trying to educate people about the mechanisms by which that, how companies accomplish that. And then we're trying to build tools so that those same mechanisms of habit formation can be used for good. Because I don't think that uh, it's morally bankrupt to have people brushing their teeth more regularly or uh, taking regular breaks from their computer to go on walks. I think that those sorts of habits uh, and uh, this rigorous technology of the mind is really what we need now as a civilization. Because the thing that's killing people nowadays is... Too much Facebook and cheeseburgers. Is that what's killing And people? the only way... <laughs> I, I, diabetes, heart yeah. disease, okay. cancer, uh, not moving enough and eating too much bad food is what's killing people. And we solved the, the problems of the biological age by vaccines and antibiotics and discovering all these things and to stop the things that were killing people. And we're not going to find the technologies to fix these behavioral problems of addiction technology overuse, overconsumption of everything by walking away from the technologies of the mind. We're going to solve them by getting rigorous and having a complete science and technology so that people can reprogram themselves into the person they want to be. Pretending that we're not programmable isn't on the table anymore. So what we have to do to be responsible with these technologies is make sure that the users in the loop and that people are able to program themselves into the person that they want to be with the help of companies, because I don't think that these technologies are going to spread without the force of the market behind them. And so I think that's how we get through some of the biggest crises that the first world is facing. Interesting. You know, I, I something I think a lot about is the difference between um, habit and, and ritual, right? And so habit is something I do because I don't intend to do it again and again and again. And ritual is something that I do very intentionally. And, and I personally want to... Uh, have more autonomy such that I intend to do what I'm what I need to be redundant about. Um, not something that I'm doing it without uh, consciousness or, or without knowing it. Um, but that said, uh, 
you know, having things automatically happen for you sure is convenient. And and uh, and that uh, that might be something that a lot of apps want. So I I, I, I totally yeah. get that. Um, well, I want to like, thank so you. So do you when you go when we go out to lunch real quick, I just want to ask when you go out to lunch, do you get a soda or a water when you go out to lunch? I usually have a water bottle on me. Okay. And so I'm do you sorry. Think that is, no, no, <laughs> okay. no. That's, that's a that's a great answer. Yeah. So, do you think that is a deliberate moment by moment decision, or are you that way because carrying a water bottle with you has become a habit? Uh, I carry a water bottle with me because I forget a lot and I remember a lot. When I remember, I'm happier, um, and so I usually run back in the house and get it. <laughs> but it, I I wish it was a better <laughs> habit for sure, uh, or something I did more regularly. But uh, I want to do that with a level of intention i think i get i get the soda dalton does that help you with your example <laughs> no no because like i get I, I always get water and it's just a habit like yeah. i don't even it's not something i think about i don't think well, do thirsty. i want soda or water yeah. the answer is always water because i've trained myself that the soda's not good for you dalton it's going to taste good but it's not what you should get right now and i think that that is how um a lot of people are and why, why some people look more diligent than other people, why some people, why some people have different diets than other people. I think a lot of it comes down to the habits that we build into ourselves, and a rigorous technology that allows anyone to decide that, man, I wish I was the kind of person who got out of bed at six in the morning and went to the gym. <laughs> Imagine if there was just a button on your phone that you could click that would cause you to turn into that person. Yeah. That's where a rigorous technology of the mind will take All right, us. Dalton, you please build me that button. I want it. Thank you so much for coming on our show. <laughs> Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks. See you, April. We'll take one more quick break and then don't close my tabs. Some of our favorite things we've seen online this week. Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Okay, Will, so what did you love on the internet this week? Or not love, but want to talk about. <laughs> no, I sort of did love this, actually. Oh, okay. I wanted, I, I, want, I wanted to talk about this self-driving shuttle bus in Las Vegas. This company um, called, Na let's see, it's a, a multinational transportation company called Keolis. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. Um, uh, the French manufacturer Navia and AAA um, launched this driverless shuttle service in Las Vegas. They hoarded a bunch of uh, press folks and VIPs on board for this this inaugural uh, ride. And I've, how long, let's see, I'm trying to see how long was it. Do you remember how long was it before they crashed? 
No, I don't. But I don't think it was very long. It was like it was like 15, 15 minutes. They got in a little accident. Oh, my gosh. And, and so the story, there was a firsthand account about this on the site digitaltrends.com. The headline is, I was on the self-driving bus that crashed in Vegas. Here's what really happened. Um, and uh, basically, it's, 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 it's interesting because it's not quite as simple as the self-driving bus just like dumbly drove into a wall or T-boned somebody in an intersection. So the bus had actually stopped because there was there was like this big piece of equipment that was backing out in front of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the equipment kept backing out and it didn't see the shuttle bus. And the shuttle bus did not, this the self-driving bus with no driver on board, did not back up, did not take evasive action. And so, uh, and, and so this other vehicle backed into it, dented its, uh, its front headlight. It was a very minor fender bender. Nobody was hurt. Um, and in fact, it was the, it was the, the truck that was, it was not the self-driving bus. It was the human driven truck that ended up being cited and given a ticket by the Las Vegas police department. It was clearly their fault, but the bus should have, should have done something right. Like it should have gotten out of the way. I guess. Hold on a second, though. Right. Like maybe a person driving the bus would have somehow found a way to circumvent that. Uh, When we say self-driving bus, though, do we mean there's like a person in the seat still? I mean, I think that the term self-driving is a a little murky here. There was someone there, right? That's a great point. No, there was there was no one in the drive. Ah. There was no driver in this case. Yeah. And and what we've seen a lot so far of, of, you know, vehicles that are called self-driving, like Uber's self-driving taxis, they do have a human driver sitting there ready to take over at a moment's right. notice. This was supposed to be special because there actually is not a, a driver there at all. Right. And and I think Las Vegas might be the worst city to do that in because there might be a lot of drunk people <laughs> driving, uh, at least uh Sometimes I don't know what time of day it was. Actually, I don't think it matters what time of day it was. <laughs> no, not in Las Vegas. <laughs> but uh, but I don't know if that was the best test case for uh, for that. Uh, it does remind me though. Last time I was in Vegas was during CES, and and self driving technology was a, a key theme of the Consumer Electronics Show last year. And it was funny because uh, it took like an hour to get anywhere that probably like by car or to get an Uber or something like that because the lot li- or Lyft <laughs> because the lines were just so long, uh, for transportation, but the theme was the future of transportation. So <laughs> yeah, I think there's just going to be a lot of fumbles along the way to our robotic car future. And, and this, the people on this bus were guinea pigs then, huh? <laughs> totally. And that was, and that was actually Wired's take. I mean, it takes a little bit of chutzpah, I think, to come right out and in your article about this crash, say that self-driving shuttle buses are still the future of transportation. But that's what Wired said. They're like, don't don't let the setback get in the way. This is a great idea. Self-driving shuttles are going to happen. And it's a matter of, of getting the kinks worked out. All right. So, April, let's move on to your tab. What did you read this week that stuck with you? Okay, so mine is less entertaining, but I think super important still is an article from The New Yorker this week in their uh, annual tech issue, and it's called The Tech Industry's Gender Discrimination Problem. Uh, Didn't mince words with the title. And it is about exactly what it says. Subject says it all uh, about uh, just a a series of stories of women across prominent Silicon Valley companies and their experience essentially with men in power, either uh, discounting them, uh, talking about them as if they're assistants. Uh, In one uh, story about Tesla, they're actually being uh, a part of the factory where women are are, are routinely catcalled. And uh, and what was so striking about this, I mean, there were so many things that were striking, but it was just how um, not just rampant this is, but how uh, normal it seemed to be and how uh, there seemed to be kind of a, a 
levels of protection for people in power, right? And so, for, for instance, with the Susan Fowler case, you know, she did report to HR. And since he was a high performer, the uh, the manager who uh, had, you know, kind of asked her, about, you know, inappropriate things, uh, made sexual advances towards her, uh, you know, was protected. And, Susan, uh, Fowler, just, Susan Fowler being the, the Uber engineer, Yes, she was the the woman who wrote the explosive memo, I think it was in February of this year, that kind of launched uh, kind of a cascade of allegations across the tech industry. Of course, we'd always had people come out, um, but after she uh, posted her very like meticulous, detailed memo about her experiences at Uber, um, the stories just started to you know, pour out. And uh, and this this story in The New Yorker is just a, a great cum- accumulation of, of so many and also a lot of important details. Um, one involved Eric Schmidt. Uh, do you remember that 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 story? Yeah. So, so I actually that that was one of my first takeaways from this piece. Um, and it, it was that uh, Eric Schmidt had walked up to uh, Eric. And he was the CEO of Google at the time. right? That's right. He was then the CEO. He's, he's now okay. what is chairman of Alphabet? He's important at Alphabet. Yeah. <laughs> He's an important, still an important guy. So there was an anecdote here where um, Erica Joy Baker, who is an engineer at Google, she's now at Patreon. She's a, she's actually a, a really fascinating person uh, to follow uh, on Twitter. We're hoping to have her on the show at some point. Um, she recounted a, a an episode where Schmidt came by asking for help, um, and and she could solve his problem. It was a technical problem. She said, oh, I can do that. But he assumed that she was somebody else's assistant and and wanted her to like take a note for the engineers and tell them to fix his problem. And then when she explained that she was actually an engineer, he said, oh, well, uh, you know, you should probably explain, you should probably put up a note on your, on your door explaining that so people don't make the same mistake. Yeah, th- that uh, was just such a, a striking, you know, story that I think stuck with a lot of people, you know, within this larger New Yorker story. And there's just also what's what what this outlined was just a lot of lawsuits. I mean, it's not like a lot of this stuff is secret, right? Like this stuff has been out. It, there has been lawsuits. People have written it down. Um, and of course, we're seeing a lot of stuff that's that's coming out now through journalism. But uh, but when you just go look at, at, at past litigation, it's all there. You know, and so people are acting shocked now and, and and they should be shocked and they should be appalled. But I think it's really important to remember that a lot of these uh, women have have been trying to sound the horn for a long time. Yeah. And, and it's interesting. There was So when I tweeted this anecdote, there was there was sort of a, a divided reaction. I mean, a lot of a lot of white male, a lot of white males who follow me were, you know, expressed shock or they were appalled or they thought they couldn't believe it. And then a lot of uh, especially women of color who were responding to it said, oh, yeah, totally normal. This happens all the time. Not a surprise at all. Um, and so I think there is still that I think there is still that that big gap between um, how white males perceive this problem of gender discrimination and and how it's perceived by women in Silicon Valley. Oh, I've had uh, so many guys think I'm like a waitress or something like that at a VC event, uh, you know, or you think I'm someone's girlfriend. That happens all the time. And, and I, I'm a journalist there to actually talk to them and find out what they're up to. So so this this happens to everybody that touches this industry. And it was great to see uh, such fantastic reporting in The New Yorker this week about it. Well, that's our show. And you can get updates about what's coming up next by following us on Twitter at IfThenPod. And you can follow me and Will on Twitter as well. I'm at April Laser. And I'm at Will Oremus. Thanks again to our guest, Dalton Combs, for joining us. 
If you have a question or comment for us, you can email us as well at ifthen at slate.com. If Then is a product of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. Our producer is the great Max Jacobs. Thanks to Don Aulis and A Room with a VU studio in Santa Barbara, where I am. Thanks to Northgate Studios in Berkeley, where I am, and Spencer Silva for engineering. Thanks also to Gideon Brower for recording help. Our awesome theme music is provided by Doug Chase. We will see you next Wednesday. Bye. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.